You're listening to sermons from Southbridge Fellowship in Raleigh, North Carolina. We pray that today's message helps you to connect to Jesus for life change. I want to ask you a question that's going to date some of you, so feel free to not answer if that's how you operate. Can you remember the world before the iPhone? Yeah, what was that like? Go ahead, speak out. Go ahead. You're clapping about it. Some people are protesting. Android lovers up here in the front. All right. Think about, can you remember a time when you had to have a separate GPS device, separate phone device, or music, iPad, iShuffles, or Discman, or what? some of you are so old you used to carry a record player around? You remember having a digital camera? We still have one because we have that many junk drawers in our house. I have no idea what pictures are on it or how we would ever recover those, but we do have that. The world was different. It instituted new, not just technology and putting all those things together, uh, but industries, app development. Think about it. There was a time when if your boss tried to contact you about work at 10 o'clock at night, that would seem inappropriate. That was a, that was a world that we used to live in. And not the world anymore, and you can check your email. If I would have checked my email at midnight in 2005, people would have been like, you have a problem. Now it's like, why haven't you replied to me? I'm like, did you send it to the AOL address? Everyone looks. <laughs> Select, delete all from 1995 forward. You know, that's kind of how that rolls. But uh, the world was different, and no one could have expected it at the time. It's this new cool device. I don't know, it doesn't have any buttons. I'm not sure. Like, you couldn't have known how that was going to change the world today And here's what happens. Oftentimes, unexpected things change our world and sometimes change the way we view the world. This will date you as well. This past Monday, uh, we had the anniversary. I don't know if you say celebrated, but we remembered the anniversary of 9-11. If you were alive when that happened, you remember where you were at. Who knew, not only, that you would spend the next several days watching TV. You probably didn't think that was the case but that you'd come to church that Sunday looking for answers, even if you weren't a Christian. Who knew that tragedy would bring us together as a nation? Who knew that it would change the world even as we experience it today? Do you remember COVID? Have you heard about that? Is that over? I can't, I'm not sure. I get fuzzy on that depending on who I'm talking to or what's happening. But I want you to think back with me. I know that everyone here experienced COVID to different degrees and levels. Some of you protested, I understand, like different things. But can you remember before you were an expert in vaccines? <laughs> before you knew all the rules about mandates and government control, before all of that, do you remember when Governor Cooper and other places, two weeks, flatten the curve, two weeks, everybody's, if your job's not essential, we don't really care about you, stay at your house. And you're like, this stinks, this is awesome, I need a new job, like all that would happen. You didn't know, you didn't know how that would change the world. Oftentimes, unexpected things change our world and sometimes change the way we view the world. Many of you know uh, that last week I was in the hospital for several days, you might be um, seeing me here, and be like, must not have been that big of a deal, so essentially what happened, short version of the story, is Labor Day, I thought that I would do the same things that most of you were probably planning to do. You know, do some yard work, cook out, whether you call that barbecue or not, I get it, the southern northern thing, I got it. But that was my plan. Little did I know that I'd be driving myself to the emergency room. Have you ever drive yourself to the emergency room? Anybody here done that? It's a weird experience. One of my favorite comedians, uh, Brian Regan, does like a whole 10 minute bit on it. He says, well, you drive yourself or do you call an, do you call an ambulance for yourself? 
hey, can you come get me? And so he talks about driving. It was a weird experience for me. I thought that I was going to be okay. I'd been sick for several days, wasn't sure what had happened, and I uh, wasn't sure if I was having a stroke or if my kidneys were failing, and I knew something was wrong on the inside. Um, everything was just off, and I was in a lot of pain. And my wife finally told me on day six of that, you must go to the hospital. <clears throat> so I got in the car, drove to a clinic. It's Labor Day, so a bunch of places are closed. I get to this clinic, which is right by the hospital, and when I get to the window, I don't know what's wrong with me. I'm not a medical expert. I just said everything inside hurts. I'm in a lot of pain. I'm not sure something exploded. I don't know if I'm dying. And she said, well, we don't have the ability to take x-rays or CT scans, but someone can talk to you if you'd like to wait in the lobby. <laughs> I know we have some counselors, therapists here. I don't want to offend you. I don't think talk therapy was going to fix what was happening inside of me. So... So no, I'm good. I get in the car. I had to drive 25 minutes to a different emergency room. <laughs> and Brian Regan in his skit, he's like, you know, I'm imploding inside. My insides want to be on the outside. Merge, people. Go ahead and cut in front of me. And that's how it was. It really was like that. And I got there and checked in. I'm laying in the hospital bed. They did take some pictures of my insides. I'm sorry I didn't post them on Instagram. People were not sure. You know, I know it's a thing to post your food. Not at that stage on Instagram. So what had happened is one of my bowels had perforated. And they sent me with an ambulance to a bigger hospital, a big wake. And spent several days there um, just on IV infusions and um, no food. And trying to avoid emergency surgery, which praise God I was able to do. I do go back to the doctor tomorrow if you're still praying for me and pray for that. Um, I had some of you texted me. I wish you didn't have my cell phone, but you texted me things like this. Um, I'm just praying for opportunities with the staff. I'm like, listen, I love Jesus. I don't want them to go to hell, but pray I don't stab them in the eye if they don't give me enough pain medicine, all right? <laughs> I'm just laying there, changed my world, not my plan, unexpected Things, circumstances, world, personal event, loss of a job, life didn't go with the expected, a call from the doctor, 9-11, COVID, the iPhone. Change our world can change the way we view the world. As we open up to the book of Daniel, we're going to see his world has been radically changed. He's been thrust into a culture much like ours. A culture of compromise where everything around him is trying to force him into its mold. I love the way that J.B. Phillips translates Romans chapter 12 and verse 2. Romans chapter 12 and like the NIV says, do not be conformed to this world. But J.B. Phillips says it like this in Romans chapter 12 and verse 2 and his kind of a paraphrase translation of Romans 12 2. He says, don't let the world press you into its mold. We talk about spiritual transformation that leads to gospel saturation. There's a difference between transformation and in conforming. Transformation happens from the inside and then comes out. Conforming is pressures from the outside that change you. Both come with a cost. One's compromise, one comes from conviction. In this series, we're gonna talk about what it looks like to take a stand, rise up is the title of the series, in a culture of compromise. 
There couldn't be a more exciting book to study than the book of Daniel in our times. Uh, Some people have called it the Old Testament version of the book of Revelation. Some of you are like, yes, what's the date? Yep, we're not going to do that. Uh, But we are going to look at the prophecies. We're going to look at the book. I know because it's in the Old Testament, it's a little less familiar. Some of you know stories of like lions and fiery furnaces and Sunday school stuff. We're probably going to blow that up um, as we look at this. But I want to put it in context of just Bible context, the flow of the Bible story. We could spend a whole sermon just on the historical context, the geographical context, uh, just in biblical literature, why this wording, the book's interestingly enough written in two languages. A lot of times you'll hear me say just kind of broad speaking, New Testament's in Greek, Old Testament's in Hebrew. Well, most of it, the beginning of Daniel is in Hebrew because he's writing to Jews, chapter one. Chapters two through seven are in Aramaic and they're about the future of Gentiles. The flow of the story is in Genesis chapter one. Those of you who don't even know the Bible at all, you can follow me in this. That's the first chapter in the book. God creates and it is good. Genesis chapter two, something's not good. It's not good for man to be alone. So then he creates marriage. It's his institution. He's got a patent on it. It's between one man, one woman. We got all kinds of gender confusion, arguments about stuff. The Bible's real clear on homosexuality, gender issues, all premarital sex, transvest, whatever you want to call anything that's a perversion, that's what it is, a twisting of God's plan, if you're buying into that and claiming to be biblical, you've compromised. Repent. The Bible's clear. Uh, Genesis chapter 1 creates, it's good. Genesis chapter 2, not good for man to be alone, creates marriage, gives them one rule, just one. They break it, Genesis chapter 3. Doesn't take long. And then sin enters the world. And if, you, if you're just gonna, like you're new to the Bible, people are always like, study John. Like if you're not a Christian, study John. But Genesis 1 through 11 is foundational to understanding life and the rest of the Bible. After Genesis chapter three, we see what happens when sin enters the world. It gets so bad that all people wanna do all the time is sin. So we got any gamers here? Anybody play video games? I don't know which systems, you know, Nintendo, PlayStation. I'm going to be proud. Oh, we got like, I'm excited about it. You ever start a game and then hit reset? You know, it didn't go the way you were thinking? Uh Uh, Genesis chapter six, God floods the earth. But there's always a remnant. He takes one family, Noah's family, keeps them. Doesn't totally start over, but it's kind of a reset. He's upset that even made man, they're so wicked and denying him and living for their own kingdom. By Genesis chapter 11, there's an event called the Tower of Babel, where God separates the nations, gives them different languages, and the only thing that sustains them and holds them together is him. And he picks one nation, it's not America, just so you know, don't want to get it wrong. Who is it? Does anybody know? It's Israel. Do you know why Israel's picked? Israel's picked because they're the least. And then they're set apart, and that's key language, they're set apart by God to be a light to the other nations, to draw nations to himself, and he makes a covenant with them. Genesis chapter 12, he calls a man named Abraham, it's the Abrahamic covenant, and then there's the Mosaic covenant, there's these promises, commitments, contracts with his people. Abrahamic covenant, I'm going to bless those who bless you. It's one of the few things that we've actually done really well as a nation, being one of the few nations that actually support Israel, by the way. I'm going to bless those who bless you. I'm going to bless the whole world through you. That's Jesus, by the way. 
The savior of the world came through the Jews, the nation of Israel. That's Genesis chapter 12. And then the first five books are called the books of the law. There's a guy in Genesis, he's a lot like Daniel, he's handsome, he has integrity, he gets all kinds of problems and circumstances in his life, but he has integrity through all of it. His name's Joseph, and he interprets dreams. So does Daniel. It's all foundational for the rest of what you're going to see. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the books of the law. So you get the Mosaic Covenant, which is basically, here's the way I want you to live to set yourself apart, and if you do it, I'm going to bless you. If you don't do it, I'm going to curse you. So Leviticus talks about that, Leviticus 26. Deuteronomy talks about that, Deuteronomy chapter 28. So you can read those chapters on your own if you want to study these things because it sets up what we're reading. Joshua and Judges come. There's no king in Joshua and Judges, but people do what's right in their own eyes. Sound familiar? And it goes bad. And then God gives chances. There's always a way back to him if you're breathing. That's the good news. If you do your own thing, it's only going to get worse. And then they beg for a king. God wanted to be their king. His plan for the way the government would work is a theocracy. It's not about capitalism, socialism. All the, the Bible has a theocracy. He's the king. We follow his lead. But we wanted a human representative. He gives us Saul. Saul does a terrible job. We picked him because he's tall. I watched one comedian who's from South Africa. He was in Canada and he was making fun of America. And he said, all you have to do to be president in America is talk funny. And he starts with JFK and walks all the way through to Biden. And so I think he has a point. I don't think that's really the thing, but. Saul, then David. And then there's this pattern. And so this is first and second Samuel, first and second Kings. And this is what gets us to Daniel. I know I didn't talk about Proverbs and Psalms. We'll get to that sometime. Um, Good king usually leads to revival and pointing back to God. Bad king, everybody does what's right in their own eyes. It gets really bad. In 2 Kings chapter 22 and verse 1, there's a king. He's only eight years old. Think about that. Did anybody here have an eight-year-old? They can't even make their own dinner? <laughs> Ruling a country. It's okay. They're the king. They don't need to make their own dinner. Make me dinner. Anyway. Um, he finds the Bible. His name's Josiah. The people had lost it. Do you know where they lost it? God's house. Hmm. Some irony there. When God's word, his truth, is not central in the pulpit, it will be lost among the people. One of the problems with the American church is that you can find anything you want. So if you're looking for a political rally, you can find it. If you'd like a social justice committee, you can find it. If you want somebody who just tells you everybody's good, you can find that. And lots of people call themselves church. If it's not the truth of scripture, so even like stuff I say is an opinion, like, oh, I like the, you know, whatever team and the whatever stuff filter that out, throw it away, do whatever you want. But you better be getting the truth. You better have Jesus being lifted up. And so if you're ever looking for another church in this town and another town, make sure, I don't care what programs they have, programs come and go. If the truth is not central, you're wasting your time. So that happened. Josiah doesn't preach the Bible to the people, just has it read. And the people go, we're not doing that. And so the response is repentance. The people repent and there's great revival. And he rules for over 30 years, but then there's four kings after him and they're all bad. Three of them are his sons. Mm. And that's during Daniel's time. Second Kings 22 to 25, you can read that for the context. 
The exile that takes place and the captivity that Daniel is in was a process. Daniel is taken to a place from his home in Jerusalem to Babylon, about 900 miles away to a foreign land. And Daniel chapter 1 tells us about what that was like. So join me, Daniel 1, verses 1 through 7, as we talk about how to stand up in a culture of compromise. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, that's one of the kings that came after Josiah, king of Judah. Nebuchadnezzar, that's a name that we're going to say lots of times, and so maybe Google pronounced that or something. He's the king of Babylon. So Jehoiakim, king of Judah, that's part of Israel. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. So good guys, bad guys, or the bad guys are winning here, it seems. The king of Babylon came to Jerusalem and besieged it. So from Nebuchadnezzar's perspective, this is victory. But who was really in control? Verse 2. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, an Israel king, an Israelite king, of Judah into his hand, to a pagan king's hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. This is different than other places in the Old Testament. We studied Judges together last year. I told you the story of when the Ark of the Covenant is taken and put before a false idol, and the false idol is forced by the presence of God to bow down and worship it. Here you've got God giving his treasures to a pagan king to be used in idol worship. And God's still in control. This is different than we would expect. The Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles of the temple of God, the ones they could carry. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Or if you have an older translation, some of your translations say idols, plural. Then the king, that's Nebuchadnezzar, because the other king's not ordering anybody to do anything now. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, yep, that's a name that I hope we don't have to say a bunch of times. Chief of his court officials to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from royal family and nobility. Notice what he's looking for, verse 4. Babylon is all about image, all about the outward. Young men, youth, youth is key. Ever heard of this? Without physical defect, if they're to put a filter on it. Nope, they didn't have that. Handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, whether it be astrology or languages or arts or sciences, well-informed, quick to understand, qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and the literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. So there's benefits to this. They were to be trained for three years. They're getting an MBA. And after that, They were to enter the king's service. So you're going to get a job. At the end of this, you can work for the government. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah. Now, we only get the name of these four guys, and sometimes we think that's all that were there. Many scholars believe there were between 50 and 75 young men that fit this description. Here are the ones that we get mentioned. Daniel, Hananiah, Meshiel, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names. We're going to talk more about that next week when we talk about identity. But to Daniel, the name Belshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach. And to Azariah, Abednego. And what happens in verse 8 is real interesting. Because Daniel was just renamed Belshazzar. But it says, verse 8, but Daniel. The book's not called the book of Belshazzar. Daniel takes a stand, and what we see in Daniel chapter 1 is supernatural. Now, usually when we think of supernatural, we think of the fiery furnace. We think of the lion's den. We think of the Red Sea or the resurrection or walking on water or healing blind eyes. 
What's happening in Daniel chapter one is supernatural. Anybody here a sci-fi fan? We got any sci-fi fans here? Anybody? What's that? Not all the same people that raise their hand for video games. I'm shocked by that. But many. Um, I play video games. I like that. That's fun. Uh, sci-fi is not my first pick of genres. Uh, movies, books, whatever it is um, that you're going to engage in for story. And here's why. <clears throat> it's not because of the names. Like, I get it. Zeelbabub Hadad fought Azrael and Frodo Baggins showed up and Morpheus came and there were Klingons. And, and I'm like, what universe are we in? Like, that's hard. And that's not why I'm going to say Daniel chapter 1 is like a sci-fi movie, even though Ashpenaz and Abednego and Belshazzar are all mentioned in here. It's not the names, although I don't like that. It's when I watch action, psychological thriller, romance, comedy. I'm watching and I'm typically trying to figure out where's this thing going and how does it work and who's really the bad guy and who's really the good guy and you can't do that in sci-fi because you're watching and then all of a sudden boom a new galaxy who are these people what in the world lasers things happening it's unpredictable many of us want miracles but we also want control Many of us would love to experience the supernatural, but we work in our lives to keep everything natural. This is supernatural because what's happened to Daniel, let's not miss this. This is not about morality and just his strong backbone. And if we would all buckle up and have better character, that is a misteaching of Daniel chapter one. I'm sorry if you've experienced that. This is supernatural because he's, been, he's probably 15 years old. This exile, although we're going to read it in 10 weeks or 11 weeks, however long it takes us, um, it's 70 years, and he's still alive at the end of it, 85, 86, 80, somewhere in that range. Scholars estimate usually between 14 and 20. It's probably about 15. He has been stripped from his home country, never to see it again. They burned it to the ground. They've even taken the treasures out of the temple. The only people that are left there basically supposed to keep it from getting grown over. They're the poorest people. His family's been killed. Probably, we don't know this for sure, very likely in front of his own eyes. He comes to this kingdom and they're trying to force him into its mold and he accepts their education. He learns their language. He, if I got close to the king, I'd want to slit his throat. If he killed my family? But he serves this king. And the way that he even protests, because a lot of times the way you hear this preached is, well, he took a stand and he did, well, why food and not literature? Why this and not that? And, and it's not because the food was sacrificed to idols, because the vegetables are sacrificed to idols too. And what's happening here? And he doesn't go on a hunger protest. He asked permission and then says, you can test me. Anybody here volunteering to be tested? <laughs> this is Supernatural. Because naturally, he should be driven by grief or regret or anger or revenge or shame. Heard of survivor's guilt or guilt, but he's driven by the glory of God. How? That's what we're going to talk about. There's only one point today, today's message, and it's simply this. Standing up for God requires stepping out with God. Because that's, like Peter found out on the water, that's where he's at. 
It's a supernatural kingdom. And it's experienced by faith. Standing up requires stepping out. What Daniel does in this passage is not natural. And it's not just because he's got incredible character and we all need to buckle up and try harder. (laughs) In fact, you look at what's happening here and the assimilation into the kingdom is very deceptive. Because if you read 2 Kings and the end of 2 Kings and how violent and, and harsh the Babylonians were, and then you read Daniel chapter one and you're like, I don't know, isn't that, it's the best education and the best food and the, these are pretty great accommodations they're living in. This doesn't sound like that bad a captivity. Mm. Because Babylon is the first ever world power. Nebuchadnezzar is the first ever world leader that's had world dominance like this. This is before Rome, before anybody else that you want to plug into that gap. And, and the why they're really rich because that's what happens. And they've got lots of comforts that come with that. You just have to compromise in order to experience them. One of my favorite pastors is a man by the name of uh, Dr. Tony Evans. He's in Dallas and teaches on the radio on the Urban Alternative. But I was listening to him teach Daniel. The analogy he gave his congregation when he started was a sporting analogy, which is appropriate now at football season. He did it like five years ago, I think. But he said, uh, we're no longer the home team. As Christians, as followers of Christ in this society, there was a time when the crowd was cheering for you. Even if they didn't agree with you, the media respected you and the marketplace, you could be honored. There were benefits to being a follower of Christ. And he said, we're not on home turf anymore. We're in a foreign land. It's true. And you can keep grasping for the past or you could acknowledge that God's put you here now, which is what Daniel's doing. And the way that he outlines chapter one, I like it, and so I'm just going to steal it for a second. He, he says the way that they try to assimilate is first isolation. They get them out of all of the things that they knew. And think about America and our uber individualism. And then it's indoctrination. If you think that this gender confusion stuff and having trans people read stories to your kids or telling you that you've sinned because your skin is white is new indoctrination, it's not. That's racism, by the way. The Bible's real clear on gender, real clear on abortion, real clear on a lot of topics that we're not clear on. The Bible's very clear. And while not, I don't want to be offensive to the people we disagree with because you're just deceived. To the people who claim to know the truth, if you're not clear on that, you've either compromised or you're uninformed. Here, indoctrination is a key part of the compromise and conformity. Isolation, indoctrination, and then re-identification. We'll talk about that more next week. And finally, gratification is what Dr. Evans talks about. Um, You'll get the king's food. You'll get a good job, a nice salary, and good benefits. How many people have compromised because they're afraid of losing that? Or in the name of compassion, have sacrificed the truth? Or because they're people pleasers? Daniel here is being taken captive by the Babylonians. The Babylonians, we saw what they value. Give me the young men that are handsome, without defect, that are the smartest of the people. 
in our culture, if it doesn't look good, you can put a filter on it. Or you can tuck it or cut it or snip it or tan it or pluck it or... And we'll just change what does look good in a couple weeks and you can buy those products. And Image is everything. It's very appealing on the outside, but it's lying to you. Sin never says, come to me and I'll destroy you. Beth Moore, when she's teaching her study through this, and there are multiple studies you could go through if you want to walk through the book of Daniel with us. That's one that you could try. She calls this friendly captivity. She says it's the most dangerous kind. And the problem is it never stays friendly. The way old Baptist preachers say it is like this. Sin will take you further than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. And here's something I want us all to be clear on. There is a cost with standing on your convictions. And most of us know that. And Daniel's willing to pay that cost, even if it means death. There's also a cost with compromise, and we don't usually talk about that. Compromise is usually a slow drift, and we don't realize the cost, but we've seen it. For every Nelson Mandela who's willing to be imprisoned, there's a Bernie Madoff who's also imprisoned. Martin Luther King Jr., Willing to stand up and speak out against racism. Yep. And then there's people that speak out, but their lives don't back it up, like Ted Hacker, who would speak of family values while seeing male prostitutes. There's a cost for both. There's a cost whether you compromise or stand on convictions, whether you're Daniel or Judas, there's a cost. Which one is worth paying? Daniel decides that Babylon is not that attractive. So even when he gets the position, he's real clear. This isn't coming from you, Nebuchadnezzar. God provided this. God's the only one that can do this. I will listen to your wisdom and then show you a greater wisdom, the wisdom of God, because the answer to being in a culture of compromise is not to run and create, some people call them spiritual ghettos. I've been in them. They're more like spiritual country clubs. Christian communities where we got our own basketball league and our own, you know, soccer clubs and we got our own, you know, back gamma clubs, motorcycle groups. It's like, do you even talk to people who claim to not be Christians? That's not God's plan. You want to start a Southbridge softball team? Awesome. In the city league. And then when you act like an idiot, they all know. It's not just my Christian brothers are mad that I threw a bat at them. Nope. You better repent and go tell them. Because we're supposed to be in this world without being changed by the world, but instead because we're transformed, that's what changes the world. See, what God, God is the one doing this here. He's the one who's placed them in this captivity because the promises to them was, if you'd obey me, I'm going to draw people to myself through your obedience. But if you disobey me, I'm still going to draw people to myself. I'll work through your obedience or your disobedience. But the disobedience is painful for you. That's the captivity. And that's where Daniel finds himself. So how does he stand up? How does this happen? And I think we see three ways in this passage today. And I'll be brief on them, but they're kind of themes that we're going to see throughout this series. The first one is simply this, that he sees clearly. And what we must do as New Testament followers of Christ is see Jesus clearly in a culture of chaos. The way that you do that is by having a biblical worldview. What in the world is that? Now, I'm going to get a little bit nerdy for some of you. Some of you are going to like that. Some of you are going to hate this. <laughs> but kind of like a classroom, talking about a worldview, a worldview is something most people never 
talk about, but all people have. You may have never sat down and written out, this is my worldview, this is how I'm going to experience the world, but you have it. Worldview answers these questions, and so if you've ever even thought about these, you have some forming of a worldview. Who am I? Where did I come from? Where am I going? What's right and wrong? And what really matters in life? So academic people will talk about worldviews and say things like this. Jeffrey Ventrella says that a worldview is a network of presuppositions. These are ideas that you have before you even address a topic, a thought, an experience, presuppositions through which one interprets all human existence. James W. Sire says it like this, and I've truncated this quote, but a, a set of assumptions which we hold about the basic makeup of the world, they're generally unquestioned by each of us, rarely if ever mentioned by our friends, and only brought to mind when we are challenged by a foreigner from another ideological universe. And he's not talking about sci-fi. He means someone who sees things differently than you. One more, Joel Setcase, he says this, it's a platform of assumptions you hold upon which rest, so it's this platform upon which rest the way you think about, feel about, and interact with the world. Let me give you a simple definition of a worldview. It's the way you view the world. And so as an illustration, this has nothing to do with Genesis chapter three, which I think is probably a pomegranate, not an apple. This is an apple, and I'm gonna ask you a question, it's gonna sound silly now, but what do you see? Apple, but different people see something different when they see an apple. If you are a teacher, you probably see a bad gift. <laughs> Bring me chocolate. Why? You think I need to have a. It's like giving nah, Pastor Scott a Jesus tie. If you ever do that, include the receipt, all right? So. <laughs> if you're a teacher, you might see a gift. If you're a kid, maybe you see food and you'd eat it. If you're a grocer, you'd probably see inventory and you'd sell it. If you're a painter, you'd probably see art and do a rendition of it. Depends on who you are and what you see. And all of us see the world differently. When I was laying in the hospital bed, the surgeon came in and he came in on a pretty regular schedule. And so one time he came in and he said, how are you doing today? What's going on? I said, well, can't do a whole lot. You guys don't want me walking around? Got Stuff strapped to me, and so I've been just flipping back and forth between CNN and Fox. I said, it's entertainment to me that how two people can see the exact same thing and see the opposite thing. And he goes, oh yeah, what's going on? I goes, well, they hate Trump and they hate Biden. It's kind of the same every day. And he just laughed about it. But it's true. How can you take the people and the politics out of it? How can you take a world event and see the same who, what, where, when, how, and come to a totally different why. It's because you see the world differently. And there are a lot of worldviews that could be talked about in academic circles. In fact, some of you are professors in an academic world, and you may be offended by what I'm about to say. There's really only two worldviews. Say, well, but what about and secularism and humanism and materialism and all the other isms that are out there? I got it. Dualism, monoism, blah, 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 blah. Here's the reality. There's a biblical worldview and there's everything else. And here's why. Because there's truth and there's everything else. So, oh, praise God for that. 
here's why I'd say that. I realize in an academic setting, that's an oversimplification. Well, what about atheism is different than agnosticism? And, and how about, no, here's the reality. They're all explaining away God. And so here's, when I say there's two, here's the differences. And so you can start to evaluate your own. One's God-centered, one's man-centered. See, some people talk about believing in God, but everything actually revolves around them. That's not a biblical worldview, just so you know. You're created by God for God, by God for his glory. If your life is for you and you're the center of the whole story, that's not a biblical worldview. That's using God for a humanistic worldview. And whatever's the end to that, whether it's money, power, sex, fame, pleasure, whatever the thing is, that's your God. And the one that you're worshiping, there's a reason they're in captivity, idolatry and not keeping the Sabbath. What? My God wouldn't do that. (laughs) Then your God's not the God of the Bible. And we've all done both of those things. We all live our lives like everything depends upon us. That's why we can't rest. And we've all created our own version of what we want God to be like. And he shatters that. And if you don't repent and then turn to the true one, you're following an idol. So, biblical worldview, God-centered. Everything else, man-centered. Biblical worldview, eternal. Everything else, short-term. Biblical worldview about an eternal kingdom. All these other kingdoms are going to fail and fall. We're going to see that in Daniel. Babylon's not ruling the world anymore. Neither is Rome. America won't last forever. Love being here. I'm a patriot. However, my hope's not here. This is my home. It's where I've been placed to have an influence for a bigger kingdom. So... How do you see the world if you're looking at it through a biblical lens? Here's what I would encourage you to jot down. These are my thoughts. I'm not an academic you know, guru like these other guys or any of that stuff. But I think a biblical worldview, it's not just viewing through the lens of the truth of the Bible, but it starts with humility. It shapes our identity. It transforms our ethics. It informs our purpose. And ultimately, here's how you know your worldview. It's not what you write down. It's not a class you take. We could do seven sessions on a biblical worldview and talk through abortion and DNA cell testing and stem cell, like all that stuff. And you can get 100% on all the quizzes. A biblical worldview determines your decisions. Starts with humility. So that's really important. It's going to be important for us, not just to go through the book of Daniel, but just FYI, 2024, Christians are going to get crazy. There's an election. Um, Don't email me about any of it, okay? All right? None of it. I'm still going to love Jesus. How about that? So if I put up a slide and it's red and the next one's blue, you're like, I don't know. You're riding the fence, Pastor. No, I wasn't even thinking about the only thing you're thinking about. And so whoever wins, Biden, Trump, some person we've never heard of, um, it's only for four years and God's on his throne and it might be a blessing and it might be discipline and either way it's good because God only gives good gifts can you see it that way that God is actually central and whether it's our obedience or disobedience he's going to do what he wants to do now it changes our experience but he's going to accomplish his purposes and so how do you see the people that you disagree with there's a question for you 
If it starts with humility, you know what? The only reason you would even have the truth is because you've been rescued from your deception. Did any of you see the criminal uh, that was recently escaped prison? He crab walked up the wall, if you saw the video. Danilo Cavelte or something like that. He's an illegal immigrant, uh, convicted murderer. I'm not trying to say he's a good guy, but can you imagine what it was like to escape from prison and be free for a couple weeks? What would you do if you escaped from prison? I read about his experience because he told them how he evaded them. So I guess he's not going to try it again because that wasn't the smartest thing ever, in my opinion. Um, he didn't eat for three days. He said he hid in thickets, picker bushes that were so thick, there's no way they could have seen him, but they almost stepped on him about three or four times. He eventually stole a watermelon from a farm. That was his first meal. He stole a truck. He stole a gun out of a garage. He's a dangerous guy. His plan was to carjack somebody and head to Canada, but they did catch him. Yeah. And they thought, he actually thought about giving up. I don't sound like much freedom to me. See, we've been captive to sin. You've been rescued out of that. Like the cave, do you see the caver that was trapped in that? I identify with that story because he had intestinal problems. Only he couldn't drive to the ER. He was like 4,000 feet below the ground. And they rescued him. We've been rescued. See, the problem for that escaped convict is he escaped on his own. And that's what all the other world religions try to get you to do. Be good enough to get to God. And some of the people that say, all the roads lead to God, this isn't. And Jesus didn't need to die, but he did. And he declared you innocent if you placed your faith in him. And so you have been set free. Romans chapter 8, verse 1, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. You have been washed clean of your sins, even the ones you've yet to commit, you've been forgiven of. Amen? But the problem is, Danello, that convict, he said, I thought about giving up just because the pressure around me kept increasing. There were more and more officers coming after me every day. That's the world we live in. And you have an enemy who wants to steal, kill, and destroy you, and he wants to take you captive again, captivated by your past sins that you know in your head you've been forgiven of but still live in condemnation. Coming after you with any of that stuff? Maybe coming to mind right now. Coming after you with... The allure of the lust of the flesh. The appeal of Babylon. The pride of life. This is your story. You write. Listen, there's no such thing as your truth. All right? That's relativism. See, there is another. Nope, that's just a way of talking about life without God. There's one truth, and his name is Jesus. And so when you see people that you disagree with, that means either you're wrong, can you have the humility to acknowledge that? that just because you're a follower of Jesus doesn't mean you know everything and are right about everything? Or they're just deceived. And they're not your enemy, but they're under the power of your enemy. You don't have to raise your hand. My wife told me I could share this story. It does not make her look good. So um, I'm glad she's not here today based on the way that I'll tell it. She has pink eye, and so she's at home online watching with one eye um, today. Love you, honey. Hope you can take a nap. Doors are going to be locked when I get there. Anyway, um, the other day I was building a closet at our house, putting in some shelves and doing some different things. And when I do stuff with my hands, I like to listen to things that are kind of mindless. And so I'll turn on The Office or a comedian or just some podcast that's quasi-interesting that I don't have to engage. I can kind of disengage and come back and still be there. I'm listening to this um, comedian, Noah Trevor, and I alluded to him at the beginning of the message. Uh, He's from South Africa. He was speaking in Canada 
but he's oftentimes known as part of the progressive left. And so I'm listening to him do his spiel. And I thought it was pretty funny. So I go to my wife. I said, Shannon, you got to listen to this comedian. No, Trevor, she's like, I hate him. Whoa, now listen. COVID impacted all of us. All right? My wife's a nurse. It was worse for her than it was for me. It sucked for me as a pastor, just so you know. Um, Because it didn't matter what we did, people were mad about it. The good news is, I don't care about people. It's just my personality. I just don't care. But I don't like to fight all the time. My goodness. So I didn't love that. I didn't love preaching in an empty room to a camera. I didn't like that. But my wife had to wear like a hazmat suit to say hi. So it was weird. And so giving her a little grace, but I still wanted to press a little bit. I goes, you hate him. You don't even know him. And she said, well, the stuff that he said, I goes, what did he say? They said, she said, I was like, ah, it's the overall experience and he's in the camp. And so you hate a person you don't know because you disagree. And I was like, will you just listen to him? She's like, whatever. So like we had lunch and she's not watching, but it's on until he did his Donald Trump impersonation. She had to look at the screen because she thought that's got to really be him. And I think he softened her up because he started with JFK and then Clinton and then Obama. I was like, okay, you made fun of some Democrats, equal opportunity offender. I said, he's not even from here. He doesn't care. He's just making money off this deal. And from his worldview, there's nothing wrong with that. See, we look at Target and the gay pride stuff they put out and they got protested, cost them $14 billion. We're like, see, the cost of compromise. But they might say it's the cost of conviction. Bud Light was $400 million putting a trans person as their promoter. Christian, that compromise, good thing they had to pay. Or they're going, that's the cost of conviction, worldview. So when you see people that you disagree with, there's only one person that actually had a purely biblical worldview. His name is Jesus. John chapter 1, he is the word. John chapter 14, the truth. Do you know when he looked at people that rejected him, what he saw, Matthew chapter nine, 36 through 38, sheep without a shepherd, harassed and helpless. That's the word for a woman who's been ravaged and left for dead on the side of the road. He had compassion on them because they were under the power of the, they are not the enemy. They're under the influence of the enemy You know, you have a biblical worldview when you look at people you disagree with and your heart breaks. They're not the enemy. They're under the influence of the enemy. And you weep for them. Starts with humility. We'll talk about our identity next week. It informs our ethics. That's everything in our lives. The second thing we see here that allows Daniel to stand up is the security in God's sovereignty. I'm not going to talk about this very much because it's a theme throughout the whole book. We're going to hit it hard throughout, but let me show you where it's coming from in the text. So you know this isn't just some pastor making this stuff up because he wanted to say that in a message. It's verse 2. Daniel chapter 1, verse 2. It said, The Lord delivered Jehoiakim. So God's the one who gave. In fact, Jesus in Daniel chapter 1, the gospel in Daniel chapter 1, is that you see God gave throughout. My favorite translation of the Bible is the one I'm reading from today is the NIV. The ESV actually makes this a little bit more clear. In the ESV, in verse 2, it says, and the Lord gave Jehoiakim. In verse 9, and God gave Daniel favor. As for these four youths, verse 17, God gave them learning. It's kind of like when... John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave 
his only begotten son. James chapter one says that God only gives good gifts. Matthew chapter seven. Even sinful dads know how to give good gifts. How much more your heavenly father. He gave them into Babylonian captivity. Do you know what the Psalms say about this? In the Psalms of exile, the Israelites actually cry out, praying that the babies of the Babylonians will be smashed against stones as their babies were. If you read 2 Kings chapter 25, it talks about one of those four kings I mentioned to you being hunted down, grabbed, his sons are killed in front of him, then his eyes are gouged out so that the last thing he sees in his life is the most painful thing he's ever experienced. And God was in control of that? To be sovereign means you're the supreme authority. You always have control. So that means this captivity he was in control of. And it's ultimately good. I know the plans I have for you, Jeremiah 29. A contemporary of Daniel. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you. This sure feels like harm. It's it's comforting because of this. If God is sovereignly in control, even of the worst chaos possible, that means Babel does not control your future. And neither does Putin, or Kim Jong-un, or Pol Pot, or Hitler, or Biden, or Trump, or anybody else. We have a more powerful king And even if things get bad, that's good. Because what God's doing is he's keeping his promises. And we want him to do that when it's 1 John 1, 9. Confess your sins. He's faithful, just, will cleanse you of your sins. But when when you disobey me, there's consequences. Ah, we can skip that part. Or we could obey. If you want to study that more, um, Deuteronomy and Leviticus will tell you where God has specifically promised this. And here's the reality of what we experience. God has set them apart, these men that we're reading about. But when you get set apart by God, the enemy will try to tear you apart for his plan. The enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And you, follower of Christ, have been set apart. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9, you're a royal priesthood, a holy nation. You've been set apart. Holy things are set apart. He let the set apart things be brought into a house of idolatry, and he was under Control. There wasn't a moment where God had to go, now I gotta go fix this Babylonian situation. Nope. Part of his plan, even in your disobedience, I'm gonna bring myself glory. And he's sovereignly in control. And there's security in that. Because even though this is terrible and it lasts for 70 years, it's not eternal and they will be delivered. Amen? Any pain that we experience now, if you're a follower of Christ, It's the worst you're going to get. If you're not a follower of Christ, this is the best you get. It's God's mercy to let us know. There's judgment and there's deliverance. You get to pick which one you want. By what you decide, which is what Daniel does next. Verse 8, it says that Daniel resolved not to defile himself by the food. And next week, we're going to talk about the food. Why did he pick food? Why didn't he pick language? How come he, you know, I'm not going to take that name. Like, how come he allowed those other things to take place? How come he got the MBA? How come he went to school? How come he was part of this culture? Because some of you need to hear in this series, stop running from culture because you're hiding. Others of you need to hear, stop being so saturated with culture because you can't even find Jesus in there. 
And so how could he engage in this culture, be fully a part of this, but then decide on food? And what you've heard preached and what you've heard in Sunday school, most of you have heard because the food was sacrificed to idols. So were the veggies. So that's not true. Because it's meat and you should be a vegetarian. Well, in Daniel chapter 10, Daniel's eating meat again. So that ain't it. And we're going to talk about why next week. What I want you to see here is there's significance in making a resolution. I'm not talking about your New Year's resolution or the gym membership you signed up for. The diet you were going to do. But I'm talking about direction of your life. We see it throughout the Bible. Joshua, idolatrous people. He tells them they keep wavering. He says, as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. Ruth and Naomi, your people will be my people. Where you go, I'll go. It's a conversion in the Old Testament. Your God is my God. Esther. Esther takes a different stand and hides in different ways and does some things that if most of us put our ethics on either Daniel or Esther, we have to say one of them was wrong. God doesn't. Different context, different people. Maybe we can give each other some grace. She says, I will go, even though it's against the law. I'm going to break the law because I've made a resolution. One of the most famous people for making resolutions is Jonathan Edwards. He was a pastor in the 1700s, theologian, very influential. We've got some of his resolutions here. He started writing them when he was a little bit older than Daniel. He's about 18 years old. They were his North Star. They set the direction of his life. He did not obey them all perfectly all the time, but he said things like this. I resolve that I will do, I would say anything, but he's in the 17th or 1700s. And so he says, whatsoever, whatsoever, I think to the glory of God, to the best of my ability, and for my own good, profit, and pleasure, because those things are not exclusive. When you have a biblical worldview, you realize you're created for the glory of God, so when you do things for the glory of God, it's ultimately for your own good and pleasure. And the whole of my duration, I would say for my whole life, without any consideration of the time, whether now or never, so many myriads of ages hence, no matter what comes, resolve to do whatever I think, so he's gotta use discernment, to be my duty. Do we even know of duty anymore? We just do what we want to do. We have obligations based on who we belong to. And there's only two choices. He says, I resolved whatever I should fall or I grow dull and neglect to keep any of these resolutions to repent. So he resolved to repent when he doesn't do this well. He resolved to always do that which I wish I had done if I saw somebody else do it. So when I see other people do stuff that's good, I should start doing that kind of stuff. Resolve to never lose one moment of time, but to improve it in the most profitable way I possibly can. So these are pretty mundane things too. Resolve to evaluate what I've eaten every day. That's what he puts in his physical body. Resolve never to do anything which I should be afraid to do if it was the last hour of my life. Resolve to never do anything out of revenge. Whoa. Resolve never to speak evil of anyone so that it should tend to dishonor the person more or less upon no account except for some real good. In other words, I'll only say something bad about somebody if it's for your own protection because they're dangerous. Hmm. Resolved when I feel pain to think of martyrdom and hell. Resolved to so study the scriptures so steadily and constantly and frequently as that I may find and plainly perceive myself to grow in the knowledge of the same. Resolved to frequently take some deliberate action which seems most unlikely to be done for the glory of God and trace it back to the original intention designed and ends of it. And if I find it not to be to the glory of God, 
to repute it. In other words, if I thought I was doing it for the glory of God, but I was actually doing it for the glory of myself, then I'll repent of the very thing that was good. Oh. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. I want to challenge you as we head into this series on Daniel to consider making a resolution today or this week. And maybe it's to study Daniel and to get into the word. Maybe it's to be at church every Sunday for this series, just for 10 weeks. I know a lot of people's habits are every other week. or Maybe maybe it'll be different for this series. To be transformed by the renewing of your mind, Romans 12, 1 and 2, and not to be conformed to this world. Maybe you think of some ways you've been conforming to this world, maybe the way you viewed other people and the division that's happened, whether it's COVID or politics or opinions or cancel culture or whatever it is, it's complicated. But maybe you have some people to forgive. The Bible says to be angry until six o'clock. Don't let the sun go down on your wrath. It's okay to be righteous anger, but don't let it become bitter. Be angry and sin not, it says in Ephesians. Some of you need to forgive. How much? Ah, Just keep doing it, is what Jesus would tell you. But I've already, yeah, keep going. As you've been forgiven, even a future sin, what do you need to forgive? Maybe you resolve to forgive. Maybe you resolve to forsake some things, forsake. Some people, when they read Daniel's diet, decide to go on a Daniel fast. There's books written about that. I don't know that I'd spend much time on those, to be candid, but... um, Maybe you fast from media, it's conforming you to this world. Maybe social media, conforming you to this world. Maybe you fast from a certain kind of food that's just self-indulgent to you. Maybe, maybe you forsake some sin. Maybe you forsake a way of thinking about your sin, about yourself, about God, about others. What resolution does God want you to make? Maybe you just resolve, like Jonathan in words, to do all to the best of your discernment, to the glory of God, and then to evaluate that on a daily basis for the next 10 weeks. Just try it. Father God, will you, in each one of our hearts, I will pray and you will have a thousand conversations today. Will you speak whatever it is you want us to do? Some people study the book of Daniel. There's no way we'll cover everything from the pulpit. There might be things you want people to know that we don't talk about. I pray that you'd guide them, direct them through your truth. I pray your Holy Spirit would stir and move, heal diseases in this room. We haven't even talked about that today, but do it. Save souls. We've got some people that are going to make a resolution of following Jesus. They want the world to know that they're followers, that they've been raised to life. We're doing this series, Rise Up. They've been raised to life with Christ because of the work of your spirit in their lives to cleanse them and redeem them. If someone needs to be saved, I pray they call upon you right now relationships that need to be reconciled. There's thoughts that need to be changed. There's sin that needs to be repented of. There's things that have been done kind of in your name, but not according to your truth. There's things that have been done according to the truth, lacking grace. God, I pray repentance. Just let us know. You speak. You move. Help us make amends. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Thanks for listening to sermons from Southbridge Fellowship in Raleigh, North Carolina. If you have a question about the message you just heard, email us at info at sfchurch.com. For additional resources or service information, visit us at sfchurch.com.